Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, with news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Long Short. Happy New Year to all our listeners and Happy New Year to you also, Drew. Yes, Happy New Year. And no doubt looking forward to another exciting year at The Long Short. And I guess the big change for our listeners is that we are going weekly, right? Yes, well, we really decided to increase the frequency of the episodes mainly due to the very positive reaction we've had so far from our listeners in our first six months since launching, but also so that we can sort of more quickly react to current events and ultimately get more industry experts into the studio to offer the views and analysis on all things alternatives that we promised at inception. And this week's episode delves into arguably the hottest topic across the investment industry, perhaps the hottest topic period, namely that of digital assets and crypto. And in the second part of the episode, we'll be speaking to our colleague, Michelle Noyce, to get her thoughts on Ama's work in the digital asset space. But before doing so, we have a real treat for you. We are delighted to be joined by a star commentator of the fintech and crypto industry. Our guest today advises on many of the world's leading crypto exchanges, investors, financial institutions, and tech firms on their fintech and crypto initiatives as well as numerous governments, regulators, and central banks on fintech and crypto regulatory and policy matters. He is a true social media influencer, having over half a million LinkedIn followers, as well as 50,000 subscribers, he tells me, to his weekly newsletter. Global keynote speaker, he features regularly in global media, including Bloomberg, CNBC, CNN, BBC, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and The Financial Times. Indeed, such is his prominence, He was named by LinkedIn as one of the global top voices in economy and finance and is the host of the Crypto Capsules, Fintech Capsules social media series. And if that isn't enough, he is also a best-selling author. His book, The Future of Finance, The Impact of Fintech, AI, and Crypto on Financial Services was ranked as one of Amazon Global's top 10 bestsellers in financial services and was recognized as one of the best fintech books of all time by the Book Authority. And... In whatever spare time he has left, he is an adjunct professor at the University of Hong Kong, where he teaches the first fintech university course globally. Henry Arslanian, PwC crypto leader, you are very welcome to the Long Shorts. Thank you very much, Tom and Drew. Thanks for having me. Uh, that, wow, what a bio. Thank you very much for hosting me. I've always been a big fan of AMA for many, many years, and I'm very happy to be excited to come on this podcast. And congratulations on going weekly. That's a lot of content to produce, but very excited that you guys take in this path. And, and we are excited too. So, so Henry, the past year, 
witnessed a number of significant milestones in the digital assets sector. We had the very first country, El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, you know, as well as regulators globally discussing how to create fair cryptocurrency regulations. So looking into your crystal ball, what do you see as being the key themes for the digital assets sector this year? Absolutely, Tom. You know, I've been in the crypto space now since 2014 on a personal basis and professionally a full-time since 2017. And every year I publish my yearly predictions. And every year I say that the last year was a record year. Uh, and what it seems, I think 2021 was definitely one of those record years as well uh, for many, many different items that took place. And we can talk about it today. Uh, what it looks like right now, if we look in that crystal ball you mentioned, uh, definitely, there's a lot of exciting things coming uh, coming along uh, for 2022. Uh, first of all, I think we have to understand that there's a lot of developments that have been taking place uh, that are really driving a lot of uh, interest. For example, one of them is the entry of institutional players. I mean, you see it right now with, I'm sure, a lot of the AMA members, not only hedge funds, but a lot of financial institutions, a lot of uh, pension funds, a lot of large uh, investor groups as well entering the space. Uh, but there's also a lot of other macro-systemic developments going on. I'll give you one very simple example. One of them is all the developments we are seeing with what we call Web 3.0 or the metaverse of it. Uh, you know, the, the Web 1.0 was the original internet where we would go and interact with static websites. Web 2.0 was kind of the, the, the internet that we have today where there's large technology players that dominate the space and there's a kind of a two-way interaction. And we are moving now to Web 3.0 ecosystem that is fully decentralized where users own their content. Uh, and where really you're able to interact and, and all of this is possible because of developments we've had in the field of crypto, of decentralized finance, uh, NFTs, and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of developments on the Web 3.0, and this is being catalyzed by the rise of what we call the metaverse, which are these 3D immersive environments where users can come and interact with each other. Uh, and this obviously really has been existent for many years now. From uh, There's been a lot of games like Second Life or Roblox that have been around for some time, but really 2021 catalyzed by actually Facebook changing its name to Meta. Uh, that has really brought ecosystems like the Sandbox, uh, the Central Land, really in, in under the spotlight. So these are one of the, the things that I'm watching. But there's many other developments that I'm watching for the year to come, from uh, literally topics like central bank digital currencies, with China uh, pretty much uh, launching its own ECNY. There's already 140 million Chinese who have a digital currency wallet, central bank digital currency wallet. Wow. Uh, to the Olympics that are obviously coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, and, and uh, to even what's happening in the field of decentralized finance. Uh, in the field of DeFi, to put things in perspective, Tom, at the beginning of 2020, there was less than, there's about $20 billion in assets in decentralized finance. Uh, we're at over $100 billion right now. And only decentralized exchanges, for example, now to trade have uh, over $100 billion of volume uh, on a monthly basis. So it's still a very small part, but there's a lot of developments going on. But overall, the crypto space is growing very, very rapidly. Um, and that, that's very helpful, um, Henry. Uh, ju just thinking about you know, crypto assets and, and, and performance of crypto assets over the past year, I guess when, when people talk about cryptocurrency, um, most people will recognize Bitcoin. And arguably that you know, was pretty much where all the talk was about last year was around Bitcoin and the performance of Bitcoin. This year, I've noticed commentators are talking a lot about the merits of Ethereum. Um, so 
what do you think is likely to be the cryptocurrency that everyone's going to be talking about, say, 12 months from now? Is it going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be Ethereum? Is it going to be something else? It's a good question, Tom. I think the uh, first of all, let's start with Ethereum. Uh, as you, I mean, obviously, Bitcoin is by far the biggest crypto asset out there, followed by Ethereum. Uh, I think it's uh, 2022 will be very critical year for Ethereum. I would argue it's a break or make year for Ethereum. I mean, to put things in perspective, in the past year, in 2021, uh, you know, uh, catalyzed by you know the push towards Ethereum 2.0 and also some changes that happened to Ethereum. One of them called what we call the EIP 1559, which had made changes to the burn mechanism of Ethereum. The price went from all the way from $750 to to $4,800 at its peak. Uh, but there's obviously some downsides with Ethereum. One of them are its gas fees. Last year, for example, the gas fees varied uh, from all the way from $4 to all the way to $70 for a single transaction, which makes Ethereum transactions way more expensive than the legacy banking infrastructure, for example. Uh, the big difference, though, now, Tom, is unlike previous years, there are other platforms, what we call layer one solutions in the market that, that exist. Uh, you know, anything from uh, from Algorand and Avalanche to Tezos and Solana and many, many, many others. And I think what's going to be interesting is that unless Ethereum is able to really get it on the roadmap pretty quickly, make sure it delivers on its changes on its promise, I think we may have uh, the patience that a lot of the crypto ecosystem has had, a lot of developers may have had, uh, may start shifting towards some of the other platforms. And still, Ethereum is by far the dominant player. I mean, to give you one example, when it comes to non-fungible tokens, NFTs, over 90% of them are happening right now on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, but, you know, so I, I'll be one, one thing I'll be watching for the year to come is really some of these other layer one solutions. Uh, many of them that are getting traction, uh, like the ones I mentioned, Avalanche, Algorand, Solana, and many, many others uh, who are really have interesting value propositions uh, not only on the speed perspective, uh, not only on, on the scalability perspective, but also on the fee perspective. And that is a big thing to watch uh, from, from a 2022 perspective. So uh, Ethereum, like you say, something to watch out for. And maybe Bitcoin, we talked about it just before the show. There might be opportunity to buy on weakness there with Bitcoin the way that's trading in the first month of this year. And indeed, since it's come off its high in November of last year. Absolutely. I mean, I think Bitcoin is very interesting. Obviously, it's the mother of all assets, you know, from, from that perspective. The dominance uh, of Bitcoin went uh, went down. It used to be in the 70s, 70% uh, 70 or so, about a year or so ago. Now it's around 40 to between 40 and 50% uh, of, of dominance in total crypto uh, markets. Uh, I think the, the what's, what's going to be interesting to watch in 22, 2022 is really what is the role of Bitcoin? Many of us, you know, used to believe that uh, uh, Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation, potential currency devaluation. Uh, and, and that was actually the argument that was put forward by many uh, kind of early adopters of, of Bitcoin. Uh, and now actually over the next couple of weeks, as we're having the kind of the, the, the latest CPI data is coming up, the inflation numbers are coming in, uh, as we're seeing, for example, what's going to uh, the, the potential Fed uh, backing away from some of the stimulus programs they've had in the, in the peak of the, of, of the COVID-19, uh, what's going to be the impact on Bitcoin, how, how the price of Bitcoin will react. I personally think, actually, there's a, there's a lot of noise around this. Uh, you know, uh, I don't actually believe it or not. I don't even, I'm not that, you know, I don't follow the price of Bitcoin on a, on a minute by minute basis because I still believe that there's a lot of uh, systemic reasons to be very bullish on Bitcoin. 
for example, from the entry of institutional players, from the institutionalization of the crypto industry to further regulatory clarity, to now the ease for retail investors to come in. All these reasons, in my opinion, make me very bullish on, on the outlook for not only Bitcoin, by the way, but also broader crypto markets. And, and, and um, DeFi, you've mentioned as well um, as another area of growing interest. You know, oh, yeah. What do you see is likely to be um, the main talking points around DeFi over the coming 12 months? Uh, sure. I mean, I think DeFi is, is definitely one of the biggest developments going on, not only in the field of crypto, mm-hmm. I would argue in the broader financial space in our lifetime. Uh, I think it's very important to understand that DeFi is really enabling a lot of features. You know, obviously DeFi is delivery of financial services without any intermediaries. That means to anybody who's listening to this call today, to this podcast today, who works at a bank, at a broker, even as a hedge fund, all these activities can be done in a DeFi world without any intermediary. Again, like I mentioned before, the volumes are still very small, right? So there's about 100 billion or so that are traded on a monthly basis on decentralized exchanges. But you can get pretty much the entire suite of financial services today on DeFi in the DeFi ecosystem, borrowing, lending, uh, even the DeFi asset management, even DeFi insurance. And all of this, again, without any intermediary, only using smart contract code. The only risk that you face in these cases is a bug in the smart contract. So there's no counterparty risk. Uh, there's no chance of Lehman events like we had in 2008 or other of the risks that we have. Uh, really, the risk that somebody has with DeFi is, is kind of a smart contract risk. The biggest, I would say, negative right now with DeFi is that it's complicated to use. I always give the example of my lovely mother. My mom, a couple of years, my poor uh, parents, I've never understood what I do in life. Uh, three, four years ago, I gave my mom a, a fraction of a Bitcoin. And now she's obviously the Bitcoin expert with all her girlfriends. But it's, it's easy for her to go buy Bitcoin. Literally, you go on your app, you know, you put your credit card and you can buy it. It's very, very unlikely my mom will ever be able to use DeFi platforms. In the same way that crypto four or five years ago was very complicated and now has become very easy to use, we should expect the same thing happen with DeFi, that you, Tom, Drew, will, you know, we all be using DeFi platforms without even knowing that we're using DeFi platforms. And that is actually very exciting because I think it creates financial empowerment. Uh, it enables a lot of creativity in the field of finance, especially with something called uh, what we call the financial Legos or composability, which means in DeFi world, I can take any DeFi application that I want, mix and match them together and come up with a new offering. And that is a super, super exciting perspective. What I'm actually uh, on the more cautious of is regulators. As you know, from a regulatory perspective, uh, you can regulate centralized platforms, you can regulate centralized intermediaries, uh, but it's pretty much impossible to regulate DeFi. Yes, there's ways we can try to do it by goodwill, uh, opt-in, uh, opt-in regimes where DeFi platforms come in, uh, is to try to actually regulate the, the, the teams behind, uh, or even try to trace the tokens that are coming from DeFi platforms. But the reality is inherently by design, it's very difficult to deregulate DeFi. So it'll be very interesting to see how that interaction between DeFi and the regulatory and policy world uh, comes together, if any. Drew is waving furiously at me. Obviously, he's itching to get a couple of questions directed at you as well, Henry. So, Drew, I know you've got some. If if I may, just because you mentioned regulation there, and and that is obviously one of the uh, the key areas that that sort of both uh, sort of hawks and doves of crypto are looking at for for uh, any insight from you know, especially in the US, what regulators will or won't do, and whether they will sort of soften their stance a little bit. Rod will talk around ETFs and, and other products. 
but you, you also mentioned sort of new market uh, entrants coming in and, and, and the, the pool deepening. And a lot of those are obviously fintechs, you know, less so in the, in the traditional finance space, which is really sort of blurring that line around, uh, you know, sort of, you know, who, who is a, a giver of capital. And as that line blurs, do, do you see regulators sort of clamping down a little bit, uh, maybe looking for more oversight of fintech firms that are currently sort of skirting the traditional financial regulation? Yeah, excellent questions, Drew. Uh, first of all, let's start first thing first. Uh, first, you mentioned about regulatory clarity that we're seeing in different countries. I think this is um, maybe putting my lawyer hat on. Uh, as many of you know, before I got into crypto, I was in prime brokerage in the hedge fund industry. And before that, I started actually my career as a hedge fund lawyer, actually. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. I literally read crypto regulations on Saturday nights. Uh, and I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions uh, today in the crypto space <clears throat> is that there is right now uh, a lot of, uh, there is by far and large, a lot of regulatory clarity already in crypto. If today you work at a hedge fund, you work at a sell-side institution, and your GC or your CCO tells you we cannot get into crypto because there's no regulatory clarity, do me a favor, fire him on the spot. Uh, there is really a lot of regulatory clarity today. We may not like the regulations. They may not be as clear as we want them, but pretty much uh, you know, by, uh, you know, all the large financial centers have some kind of regulatory clarity in place. Um, now, how are regulators going to approach it? I would argue, you know, I'm, I have the privilege of dealing a lot of regulators. I sit on the Hong Kong Regulators uh, FinTech Advisory Board. I, I'm on the uh, same similar or, or, uh, group for the Dubai Regulators, for example. I, and I, I have the privilege, of, of course, of training many regulators around the world in crypto. Uh, I would tell you that the average regulator that I speak with is often by far, by far more knowledgeable than the average financial services professional. So I think often we have this misconception that regulators are not familiar with crypto. I would say that's often not the case. I would expect a lot of activity uh, on the regulatory side uh, globally this year. In the US, I find it frankly a bit um, interesting that uh, uh, Bitcoin ETFs for physical Bitcoin are, are not approved yet. Uh, yes, we have enough cash settled Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, you know, I just find it's, it's, you know, that the fact that we have them approved in Canada, other places, I just think it's a matter of time we're going to have the physical Bitcoin ETF approved, uh, Drew, on that perspective. When it comes to climbing down from regulators, absolutely. And I think one of the other misconceptions is that I can guarantee you that, uh, you know, the crypto industry wants to see regulators clamp down on some of these bad apples in the crypto ecosystem. You know, there's a lot of crypto players in the market, many of the crypto hedge funds, many of the, the exchanges, many of the other intermediaries who want to build the future of finance, who are generally trying their best uh, to become uh, not only regulated, but operate with the best standards. Uh, like in any other industry, unfortunately, there are some bad apples. And these are the, some of the bad apples that give the industry a bad name. And uh, really, I think if there was, uh, there's, uh, you'd be surprised that I think if there's some more enforcement on some of these bad players, bad actors, I think that would be very welcome from the broader crypto ecosystem as a whole. And so just keeping on that topic for, for a moment longer, uh, as you say, you know, I think it was around mid, midpoint last year when, when the, the Bitcoin ETFs, the decision was coming through and, and everybody was, was waiting on that. And that there's been, uh, I believe, a, a report by the SEC is, is due out on a, on a central bank uh, cryptocurrency in the next few weeks. Could you just give us uh, and our listeners uh, a few key dates to, to keep in our diaries that, that may sort of help guide us in, in the coming year? Sure. 
uh, there's a couple of things I'll be watching, let's say, um, you know, catalyst moments that I'll be watching over the next couple of months. Uh, one of them is definitely what's going to happen. You mentioned the, the digital currency report by, from the U.S. is what's going to happen in China. Uh, so obviously with China, what it's ECNY, uh, I mean, you know, I mentioned before there was over, over 140 million wallets already in place. This is according to official data. Just last year, there was over 9.7 billion U.S. dollars of Chinese ECNY CBDC transacted already, uh, especially with the Olympics starting on February 4th. I think this is going to be very interesting to watch. So while the, the Chinese CBDC is only focused on China to start, I think this is going to generate a lot of attention uh, around the world uh, on, on some of these issues that it's happening. So I think that's definitely something I'll be watching very, very closely uh, over the next couple, couple of months. The other thing, by the way, I'm watching very closely, it's not actually related to regulatory clarity, but actually related to something even more boring, which is tax clarity. Uh, you know, we, we often think about the regulatory clarity, but we forget that for institutional players to come in, you kind of need both in that, from that perspective. Uh, you know, like, let's look, at the, let's look at the world of NFTs, for example, right? Um, there's so many issues right now that there's so much uncertainty on the tax side uh, that needs to be settled as well. Uh, for example, on the NFT side, when you're issuing an NFT, how is that, how is that issuance tax, for example? On an accounting perspective, how do you look at an NFT? Is it an IP right? Is it an intangible asset? Even on the legal side, you know, like uh, how do you, is it an NFT? Is it IP right? What about consumer protection? I mean, to put things in perspective, uh, we at PwC, we publish a report every year, a global crypto tax report. There's only less than 7% of tax authorities around the world. This is the main economies that have any kind of guidance on NFTs. And NFT is one of them. It's, it's, it's equally bad on pretty much all different crypto asset classes, right? So I think these are some of the catalysts I'll be following. Uh, the other big thing maybe uh, to, to, to uh, finish this topic off is I'll be really following on the broader policy side. I mean, this year we had El Salvador, as Tom was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, uh, recognizing Bitcoin as legal tender. While I don't think uh, there'll be another country that recognize Bitcoin as legal tender. I'm very happy to be proven wrong on that. I think it's generally uh, generating a lot of attention, uh, not only from other uh, countries that are do dollarized or de facto dollarized. Uh, Panama is a very good example of a de facto do do dollarized country. Other developing countries like Paraguay, for example. But I think it's, it's generating a lot of interest more broadly. I'll give an example. The country of Palau uh, is looking at issuing a government-backed U.S. dollar stablecoin. Uh, Marshall Islands has been looking for some time at issuing decentralized uh, uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, so there's a lot of these discussions will come up whether we should recognize Bitcoin as legal tender. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, it's not only an emerging problem issue or debate, even in the US, according to a recent survey, 27% of respondents were in favor of recognizing Bitcoin as legal tender in the United States. So this is one topic I'll be watching very closely, especially the reaction of some of, let's say, the legacy institutions mm -hmm. like the IMF, the World Bank that were created on the back of the Bretton Woods uh, meetings uh, towards uh, the end of the Second World War, where the US dollar was recognized as the world the reserve currency. Uh, they've been obviously very negative on the move from El Salvador. Uh, they've had obviously very, um, they, they officially declined to help countries like El Salvador that were trying to embark on this journey. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that dynamic takes place over the next couple of weeks and months. And another thing, if I if I may jump in, Henry, is is also the the landscape of investors that are allocating um, to crypto assets. I mean, the capital invested is still largely from high net worth, from family offices. But we've been reading, you know, certainly over the last six months, that the curiosity from institutional investors, big pension plans, you know, it, it, you know, is there. 
Now, to what extent do you think then that we're likely to see um, a progression towards the digital assets industry becoming more institutionalized? Or do you think that has already started? Uh, absolutely. Not only it started, but I would, think, I would say it's moving faster than many people expected it. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, let's look only from a hedge fund perspective. I think there are way more hedge funds that are trading crypto than I think the broader uh, public or, you know, uh, stakeholders would actually be uh, aware of or actually uh, believe so, I would say. Uh, there's definitely the industry become institutionalized. Uh, there's no doubt about that. As you mentioned, in the early days, a lot of the institutional investors in crypto were family offices and, let's say, quote-unquote, high net worth individuals. We are definitely seeing the, the, the investors that kind of move up the capital ladder as we're seeing crypto. Uh, many of them are starting now by investing equity into big crypto companies. A very good example is, uh, let's say, uh, FTX, uh, the large crypto exchange that just raised over $400 million at a valuation of $25 billion uh, that included many uh, large uh, pension funds. Uh, Ontario Teacher Pension Plan was one of them. Temasek was one of them, according to public records or public uh, uh, media reports, for example. Uh, and that we're seeing, obviously, and I believe this is why the hedge fund industry will benefit a lot, because a lot of these institutional players, in the same way that a lot of the institutional players discovered VC hedge funds, you know, in the 90s, the early 2000s, uh, they invested in third-party managers, discovered how it works, and eventually some of them, especially the big guys, brought this in-house, including, for example, many of the big pension funds, for example. I think we're going to see the same thing. So I'm very bullish on the potential of the crypto hedge fund industry. I think this industry is going to grow significantly. I expect to see most large um, hedge funds as well to have a whole crypto team as well. I expect to see all banks, uh, sell-side banks, to have a crypto offering to their clients as part of their prime brokerage offering, uh, because that's obviously a big advantage they'll have where they can offer cross-portfolio margining and other benefits as a one-stop shop uh, offering from that perspective. So I remain extremely bullish. I think we are in the crypto space right now, where the hedge fund industry was in the late 1990s, where we were with derivatives in the late 1990s, where we were at the time, early 2000s, with emerging markets. And we're going to go to this era. And probably we'll look back, Tom, and Drew, to this podcast in 10, 15 years, and say, wow, it was incredible. Like we thought crypto was at the frontier. And by then, it'll be completely business as usual for any uh, hedge fund uh, that is trading as part of your multi-asset uh, allocation. And I think you, I think uh, some some breaking news sort of yesterday of uh, some certain large players that, that seem to have uh, potentially changed their mind on crypto or, or, or at least a, a dipping a toe uh, I found particularly interesting and, and obviously speculation will be rife around that for uh, the coming weeks and months, I'm sure. Um, but just to put a data point to uh, what you were saying just then, you know, obviously, as you say, uh, many hedge funds, you know, will be looking into that space uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but, but just to bring up the report that, that AIMR and PwC did last year seemed to uh, imply that, that hedge funds were taking a, a cautious approach to entering digital assets, uh, and, and, and maybe rightly so uh, at this point in time. Uh, I think the data point was that on average, 3% uh, of their total AUM was invested, uh, although the caveat there being that 85% said they were looking to expand that by the end of 2021. So just looking into the year ahead, do you think the slow and steady approach will continue, or do you think there will be some exponential growth as people become more comfortable with what is ultimately very different to you know, any, you know, new SPACs or something we may have seen a, a few years ago. Yeah. 
No, you know, we do a lot of uh, reports in my capacity of crypto leader at PwC. We published a lot of reports. By far my favorite at the same. I, mean, I love all my children, but uh, the particularly crypto hedge fund report is by far my favorite uh, that is going to go on its fourth year. And uh, we're very happy to partner with AMA in addition to Elwood on, on doing that this year as well. I think the big, um, the, what I, I, I don't, if I was a betting man, I, I would say I would not be, I would not expect the percentage of their allocation that now it was 3% last year to increase that materially. However, what I would expect is that there is broader number of hedge funds who are now invested in crypto uh, that will take place uh, this year. I, I would argue, I, you know, it's been very interesting uh, because obviously I've been talking to a lot of hedge fund managers for the last four or five years about crypto. And really there was a shift that happened, I would say about 12 to 18 months ago, where previously a lot of hedge fund managers, a lot of PMs would tell me, Henry, we don't want to get into crypto because we're worried our LPs, our end investors will be pissed off that we're dealing with these assets are all about money laundering and so on and so forth. Um, and really the shift happened about 12 to 18 months ago where uh, I was getting phone calls from pretty much all the hedge funds saying, hey, Henry, we need to get in because we believe if we don't do it, our investors will ask us why we're not into crypto, especially where there's so many opportunities. Uh, so, and definitely to be fair, uh, compared to uh, two, three years ago, now there are in tier one in custodians that can handle it. They have brokers that can handle it. There are service providers that can help you on it. So the industry has matured enough. And uh, I really believe it's just going to go one way from here. Uh, it will be uh, crypto assets will just be another asset class that every, every you know, multi-asset hedge fund will be trading in the next uh, couple of years. And Henry, as you mentioned, uh, you know, AMA did team up with PwC last year on, on the crypto um, uh, report. Um, and I know that uh, hot off the press that, you know, we're going to be collaborating again with you this year. Yeah. So what what is um, th this new research like to take the form of? Yeah, you know, it's, for those who haven't read it, I highly recommend uh, you read the the, the, the PwC uh, Elwood AMA uh, crypto hedge fund report. Uh, this is it's going to go on this fourth year. And the goal with this report was very simple. Uh, the idea, actually, the way it came up, you know, I spent many years in my prime brokerage days. I was actually in the Capitron consulting team where we used to have these reports about the industry. And I, I couldn't find any in the hedge, crypto hedge fund world. So that's how we launched this report. And in this report, we cover not only a lot of investment topics, uh, performance, not only for long-only crypto hedge funds, but, um, uh, uh, let's say um, uh, every kind of strategy you can think about from relative value uh, to multi-strat, uh, but also we cover a lot of the assets. What are the most common crypto assets traded by crypto uh, hedge funds? We look at who their investors are. You know, uh, and we track and we've been tracking now this data for three, four years. So it's very interesting insights for anybody joining. The part that I find even more interesting is the non-investment side. So we've been tracking now every year what percentage of crypto hedge funds have independent directors, what percentage use independent fund administrators, what percentage use independent custodians, how many of them are using derivatives, how many of them are, are in DeFi. So we track a lot of these very interesting data points uh, that I find really show the growth of the ecosystem. And I'm very proud that the report now has become kind of the, uh, the industry benchmark uh, from this perspective. So I'm very happy to release it again over the next couple of months. But I think for anybody in the crypto, in the hedge fund industry, that report is kind of a must read from, from that perspective. And Henry, we're going to have to get you back on the long shore to take us through the findings of that report when it comes out, as you say, later in the spring. It and maybe that been... in crypto, it's a long only. I'm not sure the long short at this stage, but it's a lot of long, <laughs> a lot of bullish uh, All right. uh, appetite, that's for sure. <laughs> Indeed. Henry, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you speak to us. And um, hopefully our listeners, no doubt, will get great insights from what you had to say today. You know, uh, 
thank you very much for, for coming yeah. along again. And we do hope to speak to you again in the future. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And anybody who wants to keep on uh, touch, uh, the best way is via Twitter. Uh, it's my name, Henry Arslanian. I post daily about, about crypto uh, on, on, on LinkedIn, as you mentioned. There's a lot of, uh, I post a lot of insights in my newsletter. Also on YouTube as well, if people are interested in the educational content, there's a lot of educational content that I have on my YouTube page. And of course, uh, my, a lot of my online course. I just launched, by the way, if I can do a little plug, an online course on Udemy called Introduction to Bitcoin and Crypto Assets, which has now become the highest ranked uh, uh, crypto course on, on the platform. But it's really geared for financial services professionals. So a hedge fund manager, a CEO, a CIO, uh, anybody who wants to learn about crypto uh, can learn from that. It's a 90-minute course. So I really make, I know everybody's busy on time. So I try to pack in in 90 minutes everything that a financial service professional needs to know about crypto. So very happy that it's helpful. Thanks for having me on and look forward to being back on, on the long short. Uh, thanks, uh, Tom, and thanks, Andrew. AMA and the ACC are pleased to announce the Private Credit Investor Forum, which will be taking place in person on January the 24th, 2022 in Miami. As a sole membership association representing the global private credit market, we are delighted to be hosting the only dedicated private credit conference in partnership with iConnections during the annual Alternative Investment Week in Florida. LPs, GPs and industry specialists from around the globe will come together to discuss the key trends shaping allocator sentiment and the evolution of asset class. The day will include expanded networking opportunities alongside our premium content. Discussions will include comparability and standardization in private credit, trends in product design, ESG in private markets and getting the allocator's perspective on whether private credit is an asset class. Join us to share in the discussion resume relationship building and make good on those long overdue reunion plans. Welcome back. Drew, I think we both agree that was a fascinating conversation with Henry. It'll be a very interesting watch regarding events across the digital assets and crypto space this year. I wonder might now be a good time to acquire a wallet with the price of Bitcoin Another popular cryptocurrencies going through a bit of a downturn since the start of the this year. Um, or maybe I could get myself some Dogecoin. That's attracting some really high profile investor interest lately. And what about Web 3.0? I mean, I look at my own kids and their friends and the obsession they have with Roblox and similar video games. So very, very big business. So personally, I can't wait to see who the next Internet Trailblazers will be. I mean, all I know is that every time I think I'm getting a handle on this digital asset stuff, something new comes up to get your head around. Uh, so we're just going to have to keep the conversation going on this one. And uh, I definitely plan to, to DM Henry after this to find out which animal will be the hot NFT of 2022. I understand we've had kittens and apes so far. So if you can get the inside track, I can retire early. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, the person I usually go to with all my silly questions on digital assets is also here uh, to give us her reaction on Henry's comments. Michelle Noyes, Amos, Head of Americas and a driving force behind our digital asset working group, has taken time out of her busy schedule to speak to us once again. Welcome back, Michelle. And what did you think of Henry's take on the digital asset space? I'm so glad to be here and be Amos token crypto resident nerd. Um, I think that he is spot on. You know, we're continuing to see this narrowing of the divide between legacy alternative investments and digital assets. I've had so many conversations just in the past couple of weeks, late last year, where members told me 
help. I need to finally take the plunge and understand this. And sincerely, you know, what they've said is, you know, I would have laughed if you told me in January of last year that they'd be in crypto by the year end, but this is where we are. And, you know, that there is, to your point, a huge knowledge gap. It takes a while to get up to speed, but this is why AMA Dog is resonating so much with our members. We're seeing so much enthusiasm. To some of Henry's points, um, you know, I noted specifically, he was talking about regulatory clarity and the fact that um, perhaps it's just folks not liking, liking the answers that they have. Um, I suspect that comes into play, but sincerely, there are a lot of questions. Um, you know, our members are still looking to regulators, particularly here in the U.S. for, and this is something that's keeping AMA's government and regulatory affairs team quite busy, and we've actually created a subgroup of DOG to focus on the policy and regulatory side. Um, it, when you have a multi-billion dollar franchise, you are not going to gamble with regulatory risk, even though that this is you know, a really appealing proposition. Something else that really strikes me is there's just so many ways to play digital assets now. So you, know, you were um, joking a bit into this intro about um, you know, buying Dogecoin or buying some NFTs, getting into GameFi. It really just underscores we've moved on from just Bitcoin. Bitcoin is still there and, and the big gorilla in this space, but there's so many, there's a diversity of strategies, right? Sound familiar like hedge funds? We have passive long only, there's trading oriented strategies, um, fundamental liquid strategies, although I'm sure that'll raise a few eyebrows who think, Fundamental and crypto in the same sentence are just an oxymoron. There's yield generating strategies that look like a, a form of alternative alternative credit, um, a huge influx of venture capital. Um, and here in the space, the divide between venture capital and hedge funds is very, very narrow. So, you know, as, as longer track records and data sets emerge, I'm really curious to see what model portfolios might look like as part of a whole diversified portfolio and within digital assets specifically. Um, I just you know, wanna also point out Henry's doubling down on education with his course. I think people owe it to themselves to at least learn about digital assets, even if they're not fully convinced about the value proposition. And even if they are convinced a healthy death, a dose of skepticism is always warranted. So many hedge funds are coming into this space. So allocators and service providers, even if they're not servicing crypto native firms, are going to have to know how to handle it because it's really hard to avoid if you're dealing in the multi-strat or global macro space. Um, just before the holidays, I shared a reading list on LinkedIn because I've just had this conversation so many times about um, some books and podcasts and reports that people can learn about it. But I think, honestly, the best thing is to learn by doing. So Tom, yes, open that wallet. Um, it's, it, it takes time, um, find some reputable sources. There's a ton of scams out there, but mint an NFT, swap a token. It clicks in such a different way once you actually start doing it. Yeah, my kids are pushing me more towards playing with Roblox, but definitely I think the, uh, the cryptocurrency is something I'm gonna take, not just a second or a third look at, but I think I take a much, much closer look at this now. Yeah, like I said, maybe it's an opportunity to buy on weakness. But um, uh, Michelle, if you could um, maybe remind our listeners about the work that AMA does, you know, with the Digital Assets Working Group or DOG, you know, as we describe it, a you know, busy year, no doubt ahead for you guys, right? Yeah, so we, we have one full track record under the brand of AMA DOG, launched January of 2021. 
bringing together the digital asset working group that um, one of our members, John D'Agostino, had um, created several years ago, along with, of course, the AMA brand um, that you all know and love. So we really started with just how to make ourselves useful. What are the most practical um, ways AMA can add value across the way that we work generally? Government affairs and advocacy, sound practice guidance, peer-to-peer -peer learning, events and education, and then just bringing this to bear within the digital asset space. So we've had very involved peer group calls. You know, we regular, regularly will have 60 folks on a call, on camera, participating. And for anyone who's run a Zoom room, this is an achievement to really be proud of. It's, it's sometimes hard to get this level of participation. We've created subgroups. So we have this policy group that I referenced. We're even creating a, a hybrid between our operational due diligence group and, and our dog group to just you know, do deeper dive lessons for that community. Um, so it's really taking shape. What I'm really excited about is we're nearly done with our custody guide. This is you know, cryptocurrency custody is a key pain point for institutional asset managers, especially once you get beyond just the Bitcoin and Ethereum holdings. Um, so exploring the different solutions, um, exploring the risks and limitations, that's going to be really important. And that's that guide is near completion. Um, the other project that is literally sitting on my desk is the AMA DDQ. So certainly, you know, when folks hear AMA, the due diligence questionnaire is still something that comes to mind now that it's 25 years strong. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of hedge fund mod module is not necessarily fit for purpose when it comes to digital asset strategies, and there's not a, a, a standard that's emerged yet. So that's a gap that I think AMA-DOG is uniquely positioned to play. Um, and you've got, yeah. and you've got I, take, I take it, um, that there is an annual conference in the offing as well. Is that right? Yes, um, we are psyched about that one. It's going to be May 11th in New York. And, um, you know, the way that we're positioning this, there's not a lack of crypto content and crypto conferences out there. But where we really do see the, the need is something that explains it to an institutional investment management buy side audience, both investment managers and their allocators. Um, something that assumes a degree of financial literacy and sophistication, but not necessarily someone who lives crypto day in and day out. So uniquely, we are doing, we are bringing crypto to, um, to the hedge fund industry. So we're doing it right in the heart of Midtown. It's a day long, nobody has to travel, or I should say, some people will have to travel from outside New York, but it's really, you know, in the heart of uh, the crypto, the hedge fund ecosystem. We're going to be doing interactive um, panel sessions and breakouts on the really operationally important issues, including custody tax. That was something that, that Henry spoke about. We'll have a whole session on tax. We'll have a whole session on accounting. This might not sound as sexy as Dogecoin, but seriously, these are the things that institutional allocators and hedge funds are grappling with. Of course, we'll also have the big name speakers and we'll talk about where this part of the world fits into the bigger Web3 picture and the technology that's really, you know, reshaping uh, value creation across so many different environments and, and keeping our kids really, really excited. 
Definitely got to get you back on the show, Drew. We got to mark that um, in our in our diary. But definitely got to get you back in, Michelle. Maybe see if you can grab some of these star speakers as well um, for one of our future podcast editions, where we'll focus on that very conference. Um, well, thanks very much again for for taking the time out to speak to us. I know the listeners uh, are hugely interested in this topic, you know, and Ama will continue to uh, work on behalf of our members. And on behalf of any prospective members, indeed, when it comes to uh, raising awareness about the you know, ever-growing and ever-influential digital assets universe. Thanks again for your time, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Long Short. And a big thank you to our guests, Henry Arslanian, fintech and crypto leader at PwC Hong Kong, and Michelle Noyes, Amos Head of Americas. Uh, to find out more about AMA's work, including the Digital Asset Working Group, visit www.ama.org forward slash regulation forward slash key topics forward slash digital dash assets. Uh, as discussed with Henry, work will start imminently on the 2022 Global Crypto Hedge Fund Study by AMA and PwC. In the next episode, we'll be joined by our friends at Simmons & Simmons and TXF to discuss the growing role of private credit in trade and commodities financing. To get the latest episodes, you can subscribe to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or stream episodes directly from our website, aima.org.